Okay. Ah, let's get into God's Word, shall we? Uh, there is a question in my role that uh, I get to ask a lot of different men over the years that I've had the privilege of asking them uh, this question. I've only had to answer the question personally myself once. Um, and when I ask this question, I've seen many different men try and answer it in different ways. Some struggle to get the words out. Uh, they're overcome by emotion of the moment. Uh, some struggle because they're standing in front of other people and they're not used to that and they're a little nervous about that fact. Some say it with confidence, just get the words right out. And others forget how to answer the question right in that moment because they're overwhelmed by the moment. Any idea as to the question I'm referring to? Ooh, crickets. Okay. Who gives this woman to marry this man? Who gives this woman to marry this man? Ah, I'm going to be honest. It's much easier to ask this question than it was for me to answer this question. Uh, why? Because there's incredible emotion behind the answer. Uh, in fact, when I look into uh, most men's eyes and ask this question, uh, I see all kinds of emotion that's kind of dancing be behind their eyes. Excitement, joy, uh, pride, uh, love, hope uh, for the future, right? And even a touch of sadness as the certain chapter has ended. All sorts of emotions on that day. Uh, as a father of a girl, you kind of think about this day. Uh, you pray for this day. Uh, you hope that this day goes a certain way. And if you're fortunate, you'll actually like the guy who's entering your family. Uh, if you're a believer, you have prayed that they also would love the Lord. And so uh, we were very fortunate. Love having Griffin as a part of our family, and he's been uh, such a blessing to us. But you know, in my 30 years of sometimes asking that question, uh, I've never yet run into a father who's giving his daughter away in hopes that his daughter will snare the young man and lead to his demise. Like, I've never really seen that emotion in that day. And yet, we're about to see that very thing where Saul has no concern for his daughter, but only hopes that his daughter can help him put an end to David's life. Our account takes place in 1 Samuel chapter 18, and we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 30 uh, together. But before we do that, let me just pray for our time uh, that God would go before us as we open up his word. Father God, I thank you so much, Lord, for this morning and just uh, the opportunity that we had to come together to worship and to be led by our students this morning. What an encouragement that was. So God, now as we come to your word and we open it up together, uh, God, I pray that uh, you would move me out of the way and that you would say the things that need to be said, that you would speak directly to our hearts from your word. Lord, that you would encourage us where we need to be encouraged, that you would challenge us where we need to be challenged. Lord, I pray uh, that you would change thinking where we need to be changed. But Lord, we give these next few minutes to you. Uh, we are your children, and we desire to hear from you. It's in your name, Jesus. Pray these things. Amen. So in verse 17, it starts off this way. Then Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter, Merab, and I will give her to you for a wife. 
Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, let my hand not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. Now, if you've been following along with us in our study in 1 Samuel, this is not going to be a surprise to you, but Saul is very inconsistent. In fact, earlier in this chapter, he had removed David from his presence because of his fear of him. And the next thing we know, we see Saul talking to David about joining his family, a surprising offer considering the circumstances. But Saul's offer has a condition uh, that you would fight valiantly for the Lord's army. He wraps his trap in his spiritual request, using David's love for the Lord as a way to destroy God's anointed one. Now, commentators are going to tell you that in and of itself, this request isn't really too far-fetched for, uh, for a king to ask uh, someone marrying the king's daughter. A man could be asked to prove himself as brave and a loyal subject. But we, as we have read through this, would have to overlook the promise that was already made, the offer of reward that was already made in chapter 17. If you remember chapter 17, verse 25, surely uh, this man, being Goliath, has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. No real surprise to us who have been reading along in 1 Samuel that Saul has not kept his word up to this point. Uh, He's not making this a reward of past action, but he's making it dependent on uh, future actions for David. Be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. Now, you might think, ah, I can't believe Saul would do this. Well, uh, welcome to Bay Life. It's great to have you here on your first week. Uh, we've been st- as we've been studying, we know that this is totally consistent with Saul's character. In fact, as we read this passage this morning, here's what I want you to kind of keep track of. Two words, and they're usually both after Saul. Uh, there's a difference between what we see Saul saying and what we see Saul thinking. We kind of have this narrator who gives us the inside view of what he is actually thinking. Uh, If we were to just roll up on verse 17 on our own and start to read the first half, we would probably just think, oh, man, Saul loves David. But yet when we look and zoom out and see the broader context, we see that he doesn't. That's why context in studying matters. But wouldn't it be great if life came with a narrator? where uh, you could hear what someone says and then hear and see what they think, like it just popped over their head, right? Uh, How are things? Things are good, narrator. Things were not good. This would be really helpful in marriage. Uh, It's okay, I'm over it, narrator. She is, in fact, not over it, right? That would be very, very helpful. In fact, we would love to have the narration bubble on other people, just not on ourselves. Now, before we get too hard on Saul, we kind of do this too, right? When we talk to people. Oh, have you heard about so-and-so? And oh, oh, no, oh, that's so great. I'm so glad they're doing well. She was not, in fact, glad she was doing well, right? Just kind of pops up. We say things sometimes we don't mean. And so here's Saul presenting one thing, but desiring another And so the narrator gives us some clues as to what Saul's real intent was. 
See, Saul knew with the popularity of David that there's no way for him to face him head on. It would be dangerous for him to pit himself publicly against David, who is a national hero right now. So instead, Saul was content to allow the Philistines to do his dirty work for him. He didn't really think about the fact that maybe the Philistines weren't going to be able to accomplish it. In his mind, it was a trap that he had set that was going to work. Look at David's answer. Verse 18, David said to Saul, Who am I? And who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be the son-in-law to the king? David speaks humbly. He has a humility about him when he responds. This was the Lord's chosen king of the future addressing the rejected king. And David said, I possess an an undistinguished genealogy. I don't feel qualified to be the king's son-in-law. Saul was from a wealthy family. David was not. Saul was king of Israel. David was a rural shepherd. And so he approaches him humbly. Verse 19, but at that time when Merab's son, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel uh, for a wife. And we don't really get much on him. We see him again popping up in 2 Samuel, uh, and it doesn't go well for them together. Uh, But commentators believe that uh, Adriel came up with a better dowry and was able to pay some more money, and so that was beneficial to Saul. So he kind of said no to David and and went uh, went with the next one. Now Saul's daughter, Michal, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Of course, Mikkel's love was the love of a woman for a man. Now, we've seen other members of Saul's family have appreciation and love for David. We see Jonathan. Uh, We've seen the people love him for what he has done. But now we have the love of a princess for a national hero. And this matter was reported to Saul. Now, seeing Saul's actions towards David, probably his attendants were a little bit nervous maybe to go and tell him um, hey, your daughter loves David. And so the guy who got, probably got elected to walk in there and say something uh, was probably a little uh, apprehensive and then was surprised to find out it pleased Saul. He was excited about this. We get the backstory. We get the narrator who says, well, Saul thought, let me give him to her. She may be a snare for him and the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore, Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. We get a glimpse as to why it pleased him. The narrator gives a similar insight again to Saul's heart and desire. And there's a noticeable difference between what he says and what he thinks. This word here, a snare, uh, the root meaning is, is translated bait. It's, uh, it's been uh, used in different contexts to, to bait a bird and to catch a bird. And so obviously, Saul's intention and his purpose is selfish. And either way, he thinks, I'm going to win. Uh, he's going to be dead, and this is going to be great, and I'm not going to be responsible for it. But I'll, I'll have kept my promise of giving him a wife. And so I'll look good, however this turns out, is Saul's mindset. So verse 22, Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, behold, 
The king has delight in you. Does the king have delight in David? No. Uh, And all of his servants love you. And then become the king's son-in-law. Of greatest priority, David was to be told that the king had delight in him. Uh, The message was written in a way that David would understand this to mean that Saul was willing to overlook the fact that he didn't have uh, a distinguished background, uh, clearing the way for him to be Saul's son-in-law. So Saul's servants spoke to these words in the ears of David. And David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and have no reputation? The addition of this level of persuasion suggests that maybe David might have refused the earlier proposal. But look at this detail. I am a poor man. Again, that's indication that he wasn't paid the reward that was promised to him for Goliath. David's response here is enlightening. Now, I'm guessing that other men in the kingdom would have been totally uh, fine marrying the king's daughter and excited about it and clamoring to be a part of the royal family and figuring out how to get into that uh, and be tied to that power and that money and that prestige. But David just kind of floats above it and comes with humility. Now notice, there's a difference here. We have the king who, has, uh, who is going to, or the one who is going to become king. He kind of floats above the, royal, the trappings of royalty. He's not affected by it in this moment. He's not trying to achieve it. And then we have the other king who has been told the kingdom's going to be ripped from his hands. He's trying his best to hold on to the trappings of royalty, to eliminate the competition. Now you may think, oh, that's a really interesting passage, Tom. It was great. Thanks for reading it. But I'm not a king. I'm not struggling with the trappings of royalty. I don't have wealth and power in, these, like, in that scope. I don't know how this applies to me. But if we were truthful, there's examples of power and structures like this all over our society that we encounter on a daily basis. Uh, Let me give you one small one. In 2002, uh, I was a middle school pastor in Dallas. And there was a book that came out. Uh, It was called Queen Bee Wannabes. Uh, It was by Rosalind Wiseman. And it focused on the ways in which middle school and high school girls form cliques. And it gave you insights as to how to help your daughter navigate those social dynamics that can occur in middle and high school. Now, the book was in large part the basis for the, fi- the 2004 film Mean Girls. Uh, a lot of the uh, information that was found in that book uh, was used to write this movie. But the main goal of the book is to help your daughter navigate this. And so it identified uh, in certain groupings there was that queen bee, and then there was the, uh, the, other, the worker bees who kind of supported the queen bee's desires. And so if one of the girls kind of got offside, the queen bee sent the other worker bees towards them. And so what she talked about was how to help your daughter become what they call a floater bee. Uh, The floater bee has friends in multiple groups, uh, comfortable moving among them. She usually has qualities within her that protect her from other girls' cruelty. She doesn't notice or isn't affected by other girls' desires to hold on to popularity or hold on to power or have prestige. She just kind of 
floats above it. That's why they call her in the book the floater bee. This is just one example of a small power structure that exists in our social settings. You might have different ones at your job, at your school, in your neighborhood, where there's certain social dynamics at play. Just a quick side note on this book, if you have middle or high school girls, this is an incredibly insightful uh, book. And uh, let me give you a, a warning, it's not a Christian book, there's going to be some language in it, uh, so, uh, but it's going to give you some incredible strategies to help your, uh, to understand what your daughter's facing uh, in middle and high school. David's not aware of Saul's intention. The sun doesn't rise and fall on Saul's attitude towards him or his potential for proximity to Saul's power. He's not affected by that. He has a different foundation from which he's operating. His strength comes from what God says about him. His strength comes from the promises that God has given him. We saw this in chapter 17 when he faced Goliath. He knew he was going to win because he, was, he knew that God would go before him. His strength comes from a different place. David's poverty here was a testimony to Saul's failure to keep his word. Verse 24, and the servants of Saul told him, thus and so did David speak. So they go back and they report the conversation uh, to Saul. Then Saul said, Thus you shall say to David, The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. All right, if you're new to the Old Testament, you might be thinking, Wait, did, did he read that correctly? Was that verse right? Did, there's had to be a misprint in the slideshow. The answer is yes. Yes, I did read that correctly. A quick history. The sign of the covenant for a Jewish boy was to be circumcised. And so in Genesis 17.10 says this, This shall be my covenant, which you shall keep between me and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And so Saul's saying, I want you to kill a hundred of our enemies. But I want proof that you did it. So they didn't have iPhones back then. They weren't going to get video proof, which thankfully. Uh, so proof comes in the form of foreskins. Now look again. There's a discrepancy between what Saul says and what he thinks. Oh, listen, I'll make it honorable and attainable dowry for you. Uh, meaning... But yet he was saying behind that, oh, I'm hoping you die. There's a discrepancy between what he says and what he thinks. Verse 26, when the servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law before the time had expired. Now, the love of Michal, Saul sees it and says, oh, look, a way to kill David. Uh, David sees it and hears what Saul says and says, oh, wow, a chance to be a part of Saul's family. They're coming at it from totally different circumstances and views. 
David's response is one of agreement. That's a price I can pay. That's a price I can afford. I don't know if you heard, about the, song, heard the songs about me earlier, but uh, I should be able to do this. This request is right in my wheelhouse. Saul must want me a part of his family. And so David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, uh, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michal for a wife. Uh, David has no problem with the price. In fact, he says, yeah, you want 100? I'll give you 200, no problem. Now, if you think your job is not fun, imagine being the counter. Verse 28, but when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal's Saul's daughter loved him. Now, we've seen this phrase before in 1 Samuel, that the Lord was with David. It's, it's not a surprise to us, the reader, that this is true, that this is what's happening here. But this is the first time we see that Saul understands it, that Saul realizes uh, that, uh-oh, God is with David. This phrase tells us that David is so much different than Saul. He has a different foundation. He has a different sense of his value and of his worth. And for the first time, Saul understood that too. And as a result, verse 29, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. 30, the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. This whole passage has been about Saul scheming to figure out, how do I kill this guy and not look like I killed this guy? How do I make his demise happen? And what Saul meant for evil, right? God turned around and was like, oh, we'll even make his name even better. We'll give him success in this. We'll be with him. It's kind of God's reverse card. He pulls this out a lot in Scripture. What Saul meant for evil, God used for David's success. What Saul meant for David's demise, God used to esteem his name. Now, this shouldn't surprise us. We see this many different times in Scripture. Uh, with Joseph, what his brothers meant for evil, God used for good. With Moses and with Pharaoh, uh, with Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, even the ultimate one with Jesus, right? Uh, Friday, tomb, Sunday's coming. The ultimate reverse card. Now maybe you're thinking as you read this, what is really going on with Saul? Like what, how has he gotten to this place? And how do I avoid it? What's his problem? Let me give you a, cup, a couple quick observations. The first is this. Saul's foundation is off. It's broken. There is a deep insecurity in his life that's visible to all. We can't help but notice it as we read through the pages of these accounts. Because it's deadly. Now, there's a number of reasons that we may face insecurity. We might struggle with that. 
Let me give you three and how they turn up in Saul's life. If we base our life and our foundation and our self-worth on our achievement, well, that's great when things are going well. But sometimes things don't go well. So achievement, we're going to see this play out in his life. Acceptance. When we base our foundation and our self-worth on what others say about us, well, sometimes the crowd is kind. But other times the emails and the tweets and the comments are not. We're going to see this play in his life. Sometimes our self-worth is based on control. How well I can control the situation going on in front of me. Do I have all my details right? Do I have everything in order? Do I have my hands around everything? And yet what we're going to find, if that's where our self-worth comes from, is that's where our foundation comes from, life is going to throw things at us that we have no control over. That we don't have the ability to manipulate the situation. Look at how these play out for Saul. Achievement. That he might be a great warrior. And yet, one chapter earlier, Goliath stands in front of him and it's his responsibility, it's his duty to go out and fight Goliath and he cowers in front of him. There's no achievement. And so if he found value in what he was able to do and the wars he was able to win, he cowered in the wrong moment. If he finds his value and acceptance, which we see all over for Samuel, uh, when Samuel comes to him, he's like, well, the people, you know, the people were talking. The people made me do that. I wanted to be liked by the people. Well, then the songs that had been sung earlier in this chapter about David were like razor blades to his heart. Achievement. Acceptance. If he wanted his value to be rooted in control of the situation, uh, he's trying to hold on to a kingdom that God has already told him, I've torn it away from you. It's just a matter of time before the truth that I've spoken becomes reality. You're about to lose your kingdom. And so Saul's foundation is broken. It's broken because he built on wrong material. He focused on the wrong things. And when life comes, and there's changes to the things that you're depending on, how well I do my job, what people say about me, how I can control certain situations, those are roller coaster things. They go up and they go down. And they lead to insecurity. David was different. He had a different foundation. His was based on what God had said about him. The promises that God had made in his word. That's where he stood. So let me just ask you, this morning, what does your foundation look like? What shape is your foundation in? What have you built it on? Are you, like Saul, getting your value from what you do? Your accomplishments, 
what people say about you, how well you can control your life and your family. How's that working out? Are you more like David, who has built his foundation on the promises of God? It's why we see him floating above the situations. It's why we see him with so much confidence. Where does your identity rest? In what you can do or in what God has promised? Uh, We sang a song earlier, Christ is my firm foundation, the rock on which I stand when everything around me is shaken, that I put my faith in Jesus because he's never let me down. He's faithful through every generation, so why would he fail now? It's a reminder to us when we come in and we sing those words, what are you relying on? What is the firm foundation in your life? What are the materials that you're building on? When I lived in Dallas, I uh, bought a house. And I'd been living in it for a few months. I'd gone through the summer when someone came up to me and they, they asked me this question. They said, how often are you watering your foundation? I thought they were joking. Turns out they weren't. If you go through the summer in Dallas, uh, there are some issues that you can get. The ground is clay around the foundation, and so when it becomes hot and it cracks, it kind of opens up and you no longer have support for your foundation, and so what happens is you have issues and there's cracks. And so I learned that you need to take a soaker hose and put it around your house and put it on a timer and make sure that you're soaking your your foundation, uh, that that you're doing this every day so that the ground would grip around your house and keep your foundation firm. Because otherwise it would crack. Now, those cracks cost thousands of dollars of damage. You start to see them in the inside a little bit if you're not watering enough. You might notice one of the doors in your room is not shutting correctly. You might see that there's a crack going up from the corner of the door up through the wall. Now, if you're not good at home repair and you didn't know that that's the reason, maybe you just took spackle and put it over it and painted over it. But guess what? As the foundation continues to crumble, the crack comes right through that spackle. And you get questions from your wife going, hey, is that normal? And you're like, I don't know. The cracks start showing on the inside first. We start seeing problems in the inside of our lives, in our hearts, when we have our foundation in the wrong thing. Eventually, it shows up on the outside of the house, visible to all. This is where we find Saul. He's lived so much of his life on the wrong foundation. The cracks in his life are being evident for all to see. 
Now, I remember when we tried to sell that house, the realtor walked in and placed a marble on the floor, and I never knew a marble could move so fast without being pushed. As it just shot down to the corner of my house. And the company came out, dug some holes, redid some work, jacked the house up, and then put columns underneath it to support it. If you don't fix your foundation, you can't sell a house in Dallas. You need to attend to the foundation. All of that could have been avoided with some more time with the hose. Let me ask you, if this house were your life, what's the foundation of it? Does it rely on you? The things that you're able to do, the acceptance that you have from others, the way in which you're able to control your life. Or does it rely on the promises of God? I just want to give you a moment, just in the quietness here, if you're online, sitting at home, just in this quietness, we're, we're going to just take a moment, just bow your head and ask God, where do I get my value? Is it from what you say about me? Is it from your promises? Or is it from what I can do? Father, thank you. Thank you for the example and scripture that we get to read and see this contrast of two men who built their life on different things. God, forgive us for the times in which we rely on our own strength, our own ability. Bring us back to that place where we trust in you, where we remember and believe the promises that you've given us about who we are, 
and how you love us. It is in your holy name, Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.